people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. In the face of global threats, how can we protect the world's oceans? In The Naked Scientist this week, we'll find out how researchers and conservationists are calling for marine protected areas to help preserve some of the world's unique marine habitats. It's the 2nd of December, I'm Kat Arney, and today I'm joined by Helen Scales. Hello! Coming up, we'll find out how marine protected areas can work, examine the evidence supporting the establishment of these around England, including one off the coast of Norfolk. Plus, in the news, we hear how the Grand Canyon is even older than we previously thought and identify a new mechanism that makes tumours resistant to treatment. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And if you want to get in touch with us with any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can comment on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists. Or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Overfishing, climate change and pollution are some of the many problems that face the oceans and marine life today. And one of the main approaches being taken to try and deal with these issues is via marine protected areas. Essentially, the aquatic equivalent of nature reserves on land, where parts of the sea are set aside and damaging activities are limited or excluded. And around the world, efforts are underway to set up more of these protected sites. Well, joining us in the studio is Jen Ashworth from Natural England in Peterborough. She's been working over the last few years on a new network of marine protected areas in English waters. Now, we're going to hear a bit more about those a little later. But first, Jen, maybe we could start by painting us a bit of a picture about what marine protected areas, or MPAs, as I'm sure we're going to call them, what are they and and how do they work? Marine protected areas are, as you say, areas of seabed selected to protect particular habitats and species. They work by making sure that activities are removed or managed so, so those habitats and species aren't damaged. Generally, you could say that in marine protected areas, wildlife comes first. We've mentioned overfishing. That's an obvious one for the oceans. What other sorts of problems do the oceans face that, that protected areas can do something about? Well, protected areas you know, are obviously space-based designation so they can't protect from everything what very widespread things like pollution you're not going to solve by just a smaller marine protected area but what you can do is you can protect them from damaging pressures so for example some development activities you may have particularly sensitive habitats and species that you just don't want damaging activities to happen on them so it's sort of doing what you can on a small scale and presumably by by helping the health of habitats and species within protected areas Does that make them better able to deal with those bigger threats, things like climate change? Absolutely. If you can have marine protected areas where you've got healthy habitats and species, it gives them a bit of breathing space. It makes them a bit more resilient to cope with those other pressures like climate change. And and when it comes to working out, as you have, have been helping out with here in England, 
where to set up MPAs, marine protected areas, you know, where to put them, how big they should be. How does science come into that? Presumably there is a lot of science involved in, in deciding how to go about protecting the oceans. Science plays a huge role in marine protected area design. Science can tell us which habitats and species to protect, which ones are rare and threatened and which ones might be representative. Science can also tell us how big, how far apart and how many marine protected areas you need to be to build a network that functions together and also science can tell us what um, habitats and species are sensitive to so what activities you actually need to manage and which ones you don't so if you, can you give us some examples of um, a species that's particularly sensitive to to some of the, the threats we have around maybe around the english coast things like trawling must be very damaging to many t- types of delicate species would that be one that stands out it can be yes but again it depends on the habitat type for example if you've got a very mobile um, sandy area that's constantly changing, then trawling might not have much of effect, an effect. But if you've got an area that's got um, species that don't move very far or burrow in the seabed, obviously then they can be damaged by activities like that. One big thing that makes protected areas in the sea different from ones on land is that obviously the oceans are much more fluid there's a lot more movement um that's that's part of what ocean life is all about so how can a fixed area of the ocean bed of the seabed and of of the water above it that fish will swim through through it how how does that actually work in terms of those mobile species that that can come and go in and out of protected areas Mm. i think there's two ways that marine protected area can help One of those ways is actually building a network of protected areas. So you're actually having areas that are connected to each other where the wildlife can be protected. Another way is if you've got healthier wildlife within the marine protected areas, then that can potentially spill over, move out into the areas around it um, and help the health of those areas too. Because it isn't just about protecting nature within a marine protected area you can have this sort of spillover effect like you say that beyond the boundaries of protected areas we get benefits as well so I guess that makes them a little different to protected areas on land in the sense that nature reserves it's basically what's inside Um, we actually don't probably want the wolves wandering off outside the protected areas on on land but that in in the ocean that's a big part of of how MPAs work. Absolutely but it's very important to remember that marine protected areas are just one tool and you do need to combine that with other management measures in the wider environment to ensure that all our seas are always healthy. And in terms of how much of the oceans we should be looking at trying to protect, I assume there are lots of different ideas about maybe what we should be aiming at. What sort of ideas of a kind of a target for ocean protection are out there and how are we getting towards, you know, actually achieving that? Mm. Well, as you say, there are quite a few different targets for um, how much the ocean should be protected. Common ones are about between 20 and 30% of the oceans should be in marine protected area networks. In, the, in England, we have a target for at least 25% of English waters to be in a well-managed marine protected area network. And actually, we're doing really well at getting there. We have just under 24% of English waters actually inside a marine protected area network. And we're working on getting those sites well managed. That's fantastic. And, and going back just briefly, um, you've mentioned words like representative and, uh, and well, also this idea of a network being connected by the movement of fish themselves. But it's also young fish that's very important and young other and other organisms, other invertebrates, so crabs and lobsters and all sorts of other things that live in the sea. And they, they move around in very young stages, so when they're, they're larvae. And that's an important part of, of protected areas as well, isn't it? How those young stages also move maybe from one area to another. Absolutely. And what you need to do is to make sure each individual marine protected area is big enough so that those species that don't move very far, that have larvae that don't really travel um, much beyond the adults, are protected within sites. And then for those species that have longer stages of larvae or swim much further distances, then you've got um, multiple protected areas that are connected at the right scale. Presumably, we've had marine protected areas in various forms for, for quite a while now, and there is good evidence that they do work in the way that we, we hope that they do. Absolutely. There's lots of great science from around the world. In England, the Lundy no-take zone has shown some really good um, improvements in the number of lobsters and the size of lobsters inside it. And actually all around the Mediterranean, um, other areas in Europe, you're getting really good benefits from these sites. 
Fantastic. Well, I think we'll definitely come back to some of those English sites a bit later. But for now, thank you very much. Thanks, Jen. For, that's Jen Ashworth from Natural England. And as I say, she's going to be with us and uh, we'll hear more from her later in the show. We have some questions already coming in. I could ask a quick question for Jen. This is from David Werheed, I think that's how you pronounce it, on Facebook, who says, what's actually done, apart from just keeping an eye on these areas, um, you know, what's actually done to protect them? How do you police them and make sure that people aren't doing bad things in these mm-hmm. protected areas? That's a good question. What you can't really do is put a fence around these sites. They're under the water. I mean, if you put a barrier in, actually you're going to change the wildlife that's there. So what you do is you put laws or voluntary measures in place to try and manage the activities. For example, you could put a fishing bylaw in and then the fishing authority can monitor whether the boats are going in or not and what types of gear they're using. That's great. And uh, if you have any more questions about marine protected areas, marine biology, all this kind of thing, you can tweet us at Naked Scientists, comment on facebook.com slash thenakedscientists or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, when it comes to protecting the oceans, one approach that's been taken is to go large. Uh, The Pew Environment Group is running the Global Ocean Legacy Campaign to set up a worldwide system of very large, highly protected marine reserves where fishing and other extracurricular activities are banned. One place they're currently looking is Pitcairn. That's a British overseas territory in the South Pacific. It's 4,500 kilometres from New Zealand. It's most famous for being where the mutineers of the bounty set up camp in the 18th century. Some of their descendants still live there. It's made up of four islands, Pitcairn, Henderson, Eno and Ducey, which together only cover 18 square miles. But while there's not a lot of land, the Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, extends 200 nautical miles offshore, encompassing a staggering 300,000 square miles of sea. Well, now there are plans to try and transform some or all of that area into a large marine reserve, possibly the world's largest. And to find out what life is like beneath the waves in Pitcairn, the National Geographic Society and Global Ocean Legacy conducted an expedition there earlier this year. And this week I went along to the Royal Society in London to watch the premiere of the film they made, Pitcairn, The Real Bounty. Few people have visited Pitcairn, let alone the film here. To most outsiders, it's a complete mystery. We know very little about this island, but we know almost nothing about what's going on underwater. That is what this team is here to change. Enrique Sala led the National Geographic Society expedition and I caught up with him to find out what Pitcairn is like down beneath the waves. Oh, Pitcairn is a really amazing place. It's in the South Pacific between French Polynesia and Easter Island, one of the most remote archipelagos on the planet. And because of that, it has some of the most pristine coral reefs left. The water is extremely clear. So you jump in the water, you can see the bottom at 100 feet deep, covered by healthy coral. And as soon as you get down there, you are surrounded by sharks and other large fish. It's the same ocean probably as the bounty uh, saw when these guys sailed there more than 200 years ago. Just to, to immerse yourself in that must have just been absolutely mind-blowing. Wonderful. It was really extraordinary because it was pure exploration. There was some science before we went but there were very few photographs and there was no video. So it was exploring a complete new world for us. Nobody had done the effort to really document visually and look at the health of the system so we can share it with the rest of the world. The footage Enrique and his team brought back is absolutely stunning and it's already helping to gather support for conserving marine life around Pitcairn. I spoke to Josh Reichart, Managing Director of the Pew Environment Group, about how Pitcairn could fit into their Global Ocean Legacy Project, which is setting up a series of highly protected marine reserves around the world. Well, our goal is to establish the first generation of the world's great marine parks. And we'd like to get 15 of these parks designated by 2022. We've actually gotten four of them done. And looking across the, the marine reserves that Global Ocean Legacy have helped to, to create and the ones that are kind of in the pipeline, some of them seem just wonderfully sort of legendary to me. You've got Easter Island and the Mariana Trench and Pitcairn Island. These are fabulous places. And I'm sure that's not why you chose them, but how do you decide where to focus and where to look next in terms of trying to push for these big areas? Well, we spent a long time looking at areas throughout the world that meet a series of criteria. One, that there's something there that's valuable to protect. 
Two, that the jurisdiction over these areas is by countries that um, basically have a rule of law where the vagaries of politics from one year to the next are not likely to, to result in a decision that's made to protect and then revoking that decision later on. Where there's some minimum degree of enforcement, the ability to enforce, and areas that are big. We've been looking at areas, by and large, that are over 200,000 square kilometers, and also areas that have not been impacted in any major way by fishing, by oil and gas extraction, by pollution coming from the shores of neighboring countries. And it's hard to find places that, that basically meet these standards. And as Josh explains, the reason very large marine reserves can be especially important is because they encompass large parts of entire ecosystems. So they will encompass reef systems that have a lot of um, species that are localized, what what are referred to as endemic species, just in those areas. If they're also larger than that, they tend to protect other species of life that migrate long distances every year that don't have really any respect for national boundaries. And things like sharks, tunas, sea turtles, um, and a variety of other species that don't spend a huge portion of their life in any one place during the course of the year. One of the greatest challenges when setting up such large marine reserves is how they're enforced. And for Pitcairn, the most immediate threat is from fishing. So to enforce a protected area could involve tracking the location of fishing vessels using the latest satellite technology. Here's Alastair Gamble, UK Director of Pew's Global Ocean Legacy. Well, Pew Environment Group is a large NGO and it has a number of programmes and one of those is actually working on the whole issue of illegal fishing. And one of the things it wants to do is to put vessel identifiers on all fishing vessels to make sure that we know where they are in the world and if those if those uh, transponders got switched off then the boat would be fishing illegally so if we can track where those boats are we could track whether there is a problem and Pew also is looking at the whole issue of using modern satellites and how you can do that cost effectively our attitude is, is that it's better to have places protected um, even though the enforcement capability may not be as as great as we would like it to be uh, um, eventually there will be better enforcement. But there's, we have a window of opportunity to protect a number of large places today that, that, that we may not have the same opportunity 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. Another site that's on the list of potential new large marine reserves is Tristan de Kuna, a remote volcanic island in the South Atlantic Ocean. And as Alistair explains, involving local residents is a crucial part of the process and they're involved right from the start. So before we can even start a site, we must talk to the local people. And actually, I have a colleague, Steve Cole, who is presently on Tristan talking to the people there. And it's not until he's come back and the people have considered what he has to say that we will know whether this is a site that we are going to go forward with with the local people or whether the local people say we're not interested, in which case this will be the end of the story. On Pitcairn, it's already become clear that the islanders do support the idea of a marine reserve as we found out back at the Royal Society, where we had a live link-up from one side of the planet to the other so we could see and speak to some of the 50 people who live on the island. And they seemed very excited about the marine treasures around their shores. Um, As as an islander, when you were doing your expedition, we thought you weren't going to find much. But once you came back and showed us what you did discover... We're all really, really so happy to see that not only we have a beautiful island on top, we have a beautiful island down below. Uh, What we can do now is we can protect what we have now discovered thanks to you. And we have the unique opportunity to be the caretakers of this wonderful marine environment uh, for our generation and for future generations around the world. So it's a very exciting prospect of what we can do now. Thank you. Goodbye, Pitcairn. That was Josh Reichert, Managing Director of Pew Environment Group, Alistair Gamble, the UK Director of Pew's Global Ocean Legacy, Enrique Sala, National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence, and some of the Pitcairn Islanders showing their support for the idea of a large marine protected area in their waters. Well, you can find out more information about that and check out some of those amazing images that Enrique and his team brought back from Pitcairn at our website. Reacting to the world's best science... 
The Naked Scientists. Still to come, we'll examine the case for marine protected areas around the English coast and focus on the Norfolk Chalk Reef. And now it's time to take a look at the science news for us this week. So what's your story, Helen? Right, I've got a story about the Grand Canyon. Have you been to the Grand Canyon, Cats? No. It's very big. It's amazing. I've been a couple of times. It's sort of, you get there and it, it's bigger than ever. You can actually, you know, you see a picture of it, but it's bigger than that still. It's amazing. I get the feeling the Lake District probably doesn't really measure well, up. <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, anyway, it's fantastic. If you ever get a chance, do go, especially with this news that it could be much older than we previously thought. So this is America's Grand Canyon, and uh, it could be so old, in fact, that dinosaurs maybe strolled down it. It's a spectacular place. It's 277 miles long. It's up to 18 miles across its widest point, and it's a mile deep. And until now, it's been generally accepted that it was formed by a river cutting through and eroding rocks about five or six million years ago. But now remains of phosphate crystals in the canyon push back that estimated formation date to maybe 70 million years ago, so ten times older than we previously thought. And that's according to a new study published this week in the journal Science by Rebecca Flowers from the University of Colorado at Boulder and Kenneth A. Farley from Caltech. Well, tracking back ancient erosion events is really challenging because scientists are aren't studying when sedimentary rocks were laid down, but when they were taken away. And the rocks of the Grand Canyon were laid down between 200 million and 2 billion years ago. Much of that was when this part of the western United States was part of a shallow tropical sea. And a river then cut through, exposing those rocks, revealing one of the most complete and mind-boggling sequences of rocks on Earth. So how did these researchers actually figure out that it was cut through at a much older age? What they did was they basically took an approach um, involving apatite crystals, these phosphate crystals, taken from the western end of the canyon. And what's going on is uranium and thorium molecules inside those crystals break down radioactively to form helium. And that helium gets locked up inside those crystals as they cool at lower temperatures. And as rocks erode and they get closer to the surface of the earth, they cool down. And so these traces of helium essentially leave a kind of record of that cooling history. So it can indicate when the canyon was cut through the rocks. And uh, using this technique, they've actually looked at the eastern end previously of the canyon and they put an erosion date for that bit at 55 million years. And Rebecca Flowers thinks that the canyon was first formed by a predecessor of the Colorado River, which is the one that's there now, but it ran in the opposite direction. Now, this all sounds quite controversial. I mean, you can't just go mucking around with the age of enormous <laughs> geolo- uh, geological structures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, especially if you have a look around on- online, you'll see there's quite a lot of um, other scientists saying, hang on a minute, you know, we don't quite agree with the interpretation of this data and so on. So there's a- there is still some controversy on this. Um, But actually, there's nothing new. People have been disagreeing about the Grand Canyon for at least 150 years. And I I don't think it's going to stop now. I mean, there's no doubt that it's got a very complicated history and it it might not have all formed at one time. This isn't just about figuring out the Grand Canyon itself, but it really helps us understand more about um, how other landscapes are formed, you know, and really helps scientists get to grips with topography and hydrology and tectonics. And it also shows that even with new techniques emerging, that there are still enormous puzzles about the world that still have yet to be fully unravelled. And with this new idea um, of just perhaps how old the Grand Canyon was, um, they want to now go out and figure out, well, just how it took shape as well. So, yeah, big puzzles. Fantastic. I love it when we don't quite know what's going on. It's just really exciting. The really big puzzles, massive geological puzzles. And now down to a tiny, tiny molecular puzzle. And that's the puzzle of drug resistance. And this is a major problem when it comes to treating cancer. And in many cases, cancer drugs, chemotherapy, they work in the short term. But tumours then become resistant to treatment and carry on growing. And this isn't only true for older chemotherapy drugs, but for some of the newer targeted therapies we now have too. And it happens because cancer cells are cunning and they evolve to overcome the effects of the medication. There's a lot of research going on around the world at the moment aimed at understanding and overcoming this resistance. And now a team of European and US researchers led by René Bernards at the Netherlands Cancer Institute have identified an entirely new mechanism by which cancer cells can develop drug resistance. And they've just published their findings in the journal Cell.
Okay, so what is this new mechanism and uh, how did they find it? Well, they started by looking at lung cancer cells that carry a specific genetic fault. This is a fusion between two genes called EML4 and ALK. It drives them to grow out of control. And then they used a technique called RNA interference. They tested 24,000 tiny, tiny fragments of RNA in these cells and they switch off about 8,000 different genes one at a time. And this was in cancer cells that had been treated with different drugs. And they were looking for cells that became resistant to the drug treatment when one of these genes was switched off and then worked out which gene must have been switched off for that to happen. And they found one. This was a gene called MED12. And it was actually quite unexpected. OK, come on. Why was it unexpected? Well, it's part of something called the mediator complex, which sounds like a bit sci-fi, but it's just a, a group of proteins inside cells that help cells to switch genes on and off. And the researchers discovered that switching off MED12 leads to the switching on of a pathway called TGF-beta signalling. This is kind of a, a molecular escape route that keeps cancer cells growing out of control, even when they've been treated with drugs. Now, the really exciting thing is that there are drugs out there in testing that that uh, block this TGF-beta signalling. So maybe combining them with chemotherapy or targeted treatments could actually tackle drug resistance to make the therapy more effective. Well, that sounds really exciting. How soon might we see this actually you know, being rolled out in to t- help treat cancer patients, do you think? Well, there's a lot more to figure out what's what's going on here. This has just been done in cells growing in the lab. It doesn't take into account all the complicated interactions between cancer cells and the tissue around them, which we know are important. But it's certainly significant, it's exciting, and it does take a step closer to understanding how cancers become resistant to, to therapy and maybe how to overcome it. Now, also in the news this week, a little slimy fish has inspired researchers to find an alternative to petrol-based synthetic fibres. And as the price of petroleum products ever increases and we run out of oil on this planet, synthetic materials such as nylon and Kevlar become more expensive to produce and less sustainable. Now, one solution would be to make fibres from proteins. These are the biological molecules, and some labs have succeeded in manufacturing threads from man-made spider silk. But Dr Douglas Fudge and his colleagues at the University of Guelph have taken their inspiration from a surprising source, tiny, slimy hagfish. And we're joined by Dr Fudge now. Tell me, hagfish, what have they got that, that, makes them, uh, that can make this fibre? What are they doing? Their entire bodies are covered in specialized glands called slime glands. And when a hagfish is bothered by something or attacked by a predator, it can shoot this thick exudate out of these glands and make a slime that really is quite unique in the animal kingdom. So they, this is, they're, they're little fish. Where, where do they live, these fish? They, they're actually not that little. Um, you know, they can be a foot long up to eight feet long in some species. And they live in all the oceans of the world. Most people have never seen a hagfish because they tend to live in quite deep parts of the ocean. But there are, there's 82 species of hagfish around the world that we know of. And so they're, they're making this, this slime all over their bodies. How do you actually turn that into to threads? How, how have you understood what's in this slime that might make a good fibre? The thing about hagfish slime that, that really makes it different from all other slimes that we've looked at is that it's reinforced with these silk-like protein fibers. Most marine animals actually make some sort of mucus that covers their body, but but hagfish have sort of taken this to a new level. They actually shoot the slime out of these glands, and there are these fibers that that help the slime sort of hang together, and it, it gives the slime very unique mechanical properties. This sounds a bit like Spider-Man, you know, kind of shooting out this this web stuff. How did you find out that their slime had these unusual properties? This is something I worked on for my PhD research uh, at the University of British Columbia with a guy named John Gosline. And uh, John was mostly working on spider silk, actually. Um, I was sort of the, the weird guy in the lab working on hagfish slime. But we, we very quickly figured out that the threads that we could isolate from the slime have these sort of silk-like properties. And it's not really going to be practical, is it, to have a factory full of hagfish churning out threads to make clothes? So presumably you're trying to recreate these kind of proteins in the lab. Yeah, so, I mean, this paper that just got published is, is our first paper where we actually tried to make something 
out of the proteins from hagfish slime. How did it go? Um, it went okay. Uh, the real take-home lesson was that we're not nearly as good as the hagfish at making, you know, high-performance fibers. And and this is something that the people who work with spider silk learned a long time ago. That you know, the first time they tried to make silk-like fibers, even if they're using proteins directly from a spider, it's very difficult to do it as well as the organism does it. So you you don't think we're going to see a hagfish shirt hitting our shops anytime soon? Not in the next couple of years. And and if it is, it's probably not going to be harvested from a hagfish. It will probably be proteins expressed in some other organism like bacteria that can make the proteins more cheaply and with less mess. But just when and when you spin them out into a fiber, it's not going to be slimy. So this wouldn't be like a slimy shirt. No, not at all. Not at all. It would be more silky. <laughs> uh, that's a nice, a nice thought to end with. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Douglas Fudge from Guelph University in Canada, and his work was published this week in the journal Biomacromolecules. Well, it's been a good week for life in outer space. Not only has NASA released results of its messenger probe that suggests that Mercury may have billions of tonnes of water ice at its poles, but also a paper published in the journal PNAS confirms the discovery of a bacterial ecosystem in a frozen Antarctic lake. The discovery in Lake Vida shows us new ways for life to survive in very challenging conditions, such as might be found in icy bodies outside the Earth. To find out more about Lake Vida and its inhabitants, Ben Bowsler spoke to Alison Murray, Associate Professor at the Desert Research Institute in Reno. This lake is, lies in what's called the Victoria Valley in a pretty area of Antarctica that's called the McMurdo Dry Valleys. The unusual thing about the lake that we're working in, Lake Vida, is that it frozen all the way to the bottom and below 15 meters for sure there is no light that reaches down there and the temperature is a really constant around minus 13.4 degrees celsius it doesn't sound like somewhere where you'd want to be looking for evidence of life that's right we were not sure what we would find at the bottom of the ice core that was retrieved in 1996 the, the ice got saltier with depth so we had an indication that there was a saline system in the, in this lake, but we really didn't know what to expect when we went back there in 2005 for the first time and drilled further down into, into the ice. When we're talking about a, a lake, my vision is of a, a big body of water, and if it's a frozen lake, then I expect a layer of ice and then a layer of water underneath. But it sounds like the conditions you've got here are more like sort of rivers of very salty water running through the ice. Yeah, that's right. So what what we imagined when we started this was that there was a subsurface pocket of salty water. And what we found, though, is quite different from that. So when we looked at the ice cores and pieced together this story, what we have found is I would describe this as kind of a spiderweb network of brine channels that are reaching and connecting through the ice. We recovered some of this brine, and one of the first things we did was put it in the microscope. And what we found was a very abundant community of bacteria. We're using a, a field epifluorescent microscope at the time, so we didn't couldn't have a really close look at the organisms, but we were astonished at, at how abundant they were. It seems significant to me that what you haven't found is one extremely hardy type of bacteria that is just clinging on to life. What you've actually found is is an ecosystem, a thriving ecosystem with all of the variety that you'd expect to find on the surface. Despite the harsh conditions, there is an ecosystem there. I think that that is a really good point and we were surprised at that when we started looking at the diversity of bacteria that were there. The only life form that we have found so far are bacteria, several different kinds spanning many different bacterial phyla. They have different physiological, biogeochemical capabilities, and so they do appear to be an ecosystem. And I don't know that they are thriving down there as much as they are surviving <laughs> down there. Uh, we're sort of on the, the limits of what where we understand how uh, metabolism can really function at this temperatures of, of, of minus 13.4. Presumably at minus 13, it's not a very energetic environment, but they're obviously metabolizing something. So where's the food coming from? The food is 
most likely coming from the resources that were sort of frozen into that lake when it was frozen. The concentrations of organic carbon that we, we measured in the brine are exceedingly high. So there is a food source in the lake. Um, there's also a lot of inorganic sources of energy which could be used by, by the bacteria. So much to our surprise, really, that this system is really energy rich. One thing that we did find is that there appears to be a, a reaction, an abiotic reaction between the brine there and the sediments. We measured really high levels of, of hydrogen, which is a readily utilizable energy source. So we think that between the carbon supply as well as hydrogen and potentially other inorganic energy sources, that there's actually a lot of energy there and that what is really holding everything back is probably the temperature in the system. And what do you think this tells us about life in other places where the conditions are harsh? We know that there's also a team of researchers from the British Antarctic Survey who are on their way to Lake Ellsworth, again, to look and see what might be under the ice. But do we think that this new discovery tells us a bit more about the sorts of things we could be looking for? Yeah, I do. I I think that it really has expanded our our vision about kind of yet one more habitat where we find life on Earth. And the last 25 years have been kind of like unpeeling the onion of, of, wow, life can appear here and it can be there. And I think that the Lake Ellsworth project uh, in particular stands probably a good chance to finding life in their system. And of course, we're always very excited to think about finding life outside of our planet. Now, do you think this gives us any more idea as to how to look for life or what sorts of chemistry might be going on in icy worlds, perhaps moons of Saturn or Jupiter? Yeah, I I think that the reaction that we have found that's going on here, the chemical reaction between the brine and this iron-dominated rock that we think is producing the hydrogen gas, most times that reaction is thought to occur in warmer temperatures. So the findings here from like Vida kind of give us a, a place to point to, to look for environments that could be kind of similar elsewhere. Alison Murray from Desert Research Institute. As always, you can find out more about all our news stories at our website, thenakedscientist.com. Christmas is approaching, Halloween is long gone, and those black rubber bats have been put away and stored for another year. Even real bats are currently in hibernation. But if you're interested in citizen science and learning more about how these mammals communicate, then stay tuned. As ecologists recently developed the first bat detector software that can be used throughout Europe. It's called iBats ID, and with it we can all become bat detectives. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met up with Professor Kate Jones, Chair of Ecology and Biodiversity at the University College London, and Charlotte Walters from the Zoological Society of London to find out how it works. We collected an echolocation call library of calls from species all over Europe, collected in lots of different habitats and in different situations. And we used this to train the software to identify differences between the different calls. So then when we, when we introduce unknown calls to the software, it can tell us which species it is and with a probability of how certain it is. So each species of bat has its own unique identification. Yes, they all have calls that vary slightly. Some species, the calls are really different, so we can play you some of the calls. If we play a rhinolophus call, it sounds like this. And uh, a different type of bat, a pipistrellus, has calls which sound like this. Now, that sounded more like a, a bird. Cheep, cheep. Yeah. So these, these calls are slowed down ten times, so you've got to imagine the actual sound the bat's making is ten times faster and ten times higher pitched than these sounds. But you can tell that there's differences between the calls that we can use for identification purposes. Now, Kate, you are sort of in charge there with your finger on the mouse playing at some of those, uh, those calls. You can actually see on your computer screen what the echo looks like as well. What we're using here is um, transforming the actual raw data, the raw sounds. So we're using an FFT transform, so fast Fourier transform of the data, which takes tiny bits out of each of the raw data. So it becomes a, a much simpler signal. So it turns out that when you do that with back calls, they, they tend to have a characteristic shape. 
So the ones which you heard before, the kind of ee, 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 that were a constant frequency, they look very flat. But when you have calls which have got a more chirpy sound, they have frequency modulation, so they sound more chirpy. So that's where you get kind of a, a vertical line straight down and then you may get a bit of constant frequency at the end. So if I just play these again, you can you can kind of kind of hear that. And then these are the flat ones. There are other calls that bats make as well. So some of them do searching calls, which we've been showing you. These are social calls which they make to attract mates or to communicate with each other, uh, which are more trill-like. You also get uh, bats which, when they're searching, they'll emit a kind of search phase call and get the echo back so that they can figure out where they are and where their, their food is. But when they get closer to an insect or an object, they need much more information about it. So they will do a kind of feeding buzz. So on some detectors, it sounds like someone blowing a raspberry, so like that. But I'll just play it in real, <laughs> for real. That These sounds are... like a budgerigar. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there is now a way that, a, a sort of citizen science, that people can help identify these bats as well. It's just quite recently, this. We have uh, all these volunteers that go out and collect data in a monitoring program called iBats, and uh, we get the data back, and we have um, over 2 million files that they send us. Wow. So what we, we, we try and do is, is go through it with some automatic filters, but those filters aren't very good at the moment. So what we're trying to do is develop new ways of going through them automatically and trying to link it up to iBats ID so that it's all one tool. So at the moment, you go through, you find a call, you take the parameters, and then you feed it into the software ID tool. But actually what we want to do is to integrate that all together. So the first step on that is, is to look at all the files and try to label all that data. So we have launched a new site called Bat Detector, which anyone can log on and help us look at bats. So you go onto the site, sign in, and then you can help us classify where these calls are and, and hunt for these calls in the recordings. Professor Kate Jones and Charlotte Walters on iBats ID. And you can hear a longer version of that interview and even more bat calls on the Planet Earth podcast. Follow the link from our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney, and with Helen Scales. Right, let's return to this week's topic, asking how we can protect the world's oceans. And don't forget, if all this talk of the oceans and fish has wet your appetite, yeah, sorry, you can find out more about or find lots of marine materials at our website, thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, it's all very well to think about conservation on the other side of the planet, um, far from large human populations. But what about a bit closer to home? Here in England, a new generation of marine protected areas is being developed and Jen Ashworth from Natural England has been playing a key role in helping that process along. And Jen's with us in the studio. And uh, first of all, Jen, why, what is this new, these new MPAs, um, these new marine protected areas, and how are they different from what we already have? Well, currently we can only protect a small list of habitats and species of European importance. And that's, that leaves a lot of things without kind of conservation protection. So the marine conservation zones, this new term for these national sites, can protect a wider range of habitats, along with species and habitats that are known to be rare, threatened or declining in our waters. So what sort of, what sort of species are we talking about that will now come under these, these new marine conservation zones? Well, for example, species like the spiny lobster or uh, habitats like native oyster beds uh, part of that. Yes, and we heard about oysters just a couple of weeks ago on The Naked Scientists, all about how, how they are doing particularly badly in the UK and, and actually we need efforts to, to restore them. So, so that's going to be great that they're going to come under these, these new, this new network. And, uh, and we talked earlier about the need for you know, not just individual 
protected areas but these networks and and that's what you've been working on is creating what developing ideas for what this network will look like how is it going to compare to other marine protected networks around the world well in some ways it will be quite similar in many countries use the kind of similar network design principles to put their networks into place for example we built on some work in california on mpa size and spacing um, and applied that to species found in English waters and nearby offshore waters. So this is being done elsewhere, but it's obviously this is kind of the cutting edge, it seems, of of designing protected area networks, of sort of thinking very carefully about what's there, and also involving people. I mean, we heard um, about how the Pew Environment Group are very keen to involve local people from the start when they're thinking about these enormous protected areas all around the world. But here in England, that's been a key part of the process as well. You've been involving members of the public right from the word go in terms of working out where these are going to go. How's that been working? Well, absolutely. Sea users have been at the heart of the Marine Conservation Zone project process. Natural England, with the Joint Nature and Conservation Committee, set up four regional projects and got people that use the sea and people that are interested in the sea to come round, get round a table and actually decide themselves where these sites should go. And so that's divers... Uh, fishermen, presumably, uh, people who like going walking along coasts. I mean, anyone who's got any interest at all in the coast of England, I guess. Absolutely. It ranged from people doing recreational activities like sailing or diving, um, fishermen, but also big industry as well, such as ports, renewable energy companies. They all got together and applied the science guidelines we set and also their knowledge of what areas were important for them. It was very important to, as well as meeting the science guidelines, to look to kind of minimise the impact or the cost to see users so we'd get greater buy-in for these areas. So the chances are, hopefully, when these become put in, put into action, that they, they will be sort of, they will actually be effective protected areas because the people helped to, to create them. We already have one. You've already mentioned earlier in the show, Lundy um, in the Bristol Channel. That's already a marine conservation zone. Um, it's a fantastic site. And you've, you've been diving there, haven't you? Perhaps uh, tell us a bit more about the seals at Lundy. You've had them biting at your fins, I believe. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, Lundy's a really special place. It's been a place for firsts in marine conservation. It was the first voluntary marine nature reserve and then the first statutory one. It had the first no-take zone around England. And then in 2010, it became the first marine conservation zone. So it's doing really well, I guess, in terms of the habitat and the species. It's just a kind of bounty of life in the Bristol Channel. Absolutely. Diving there is really special. Um, you can find all five species of cup corals we have in the UK. Um, this kelp forest, uh, rocky reefs covered in sponges, anemones, sea fans. And as you mentioned, the seals. There's a colony of grey seals on Lundy and they're quite friendly and interested in the divers and the snorkelers they'll come along and they'll buzz past you they'll hide in the kelp forest and then kind of come out and nibble your fins or kind of try and mouth at your wetsuit as well so it's not like a case of us uh, trying to interact with the wildlife the wildlife is interacting with us by the sounds of it that's fantastic um, and we're, we're at a very interesting stage at this whole process of setting up these marine conservation zones are we um what's what's happening next where are we and where are we at at the moment it is a really exciting time as you say, DEFRA are going to be launching their consultation on the marine conservation zone soon. So in the last year, the re these four regional projects submitted their ideas on where the site should go to Natural England and the Joint Nature Conservation Committee. In July, we provided our advice on the science to DEFRA. And now DEFRA are making their decisions about what sites to take forward, which sites might need a bit more evidence and which sites they're not going to take forward. And that's going to be happening really soon. And that's a great opportunity for people to get involved. What do you think about these sites? Do you have any evidence to support these sites or to not support these sites? So people should keep an eye out for that consultation and let us know what they think. So that's coming up in December, isn't it? In the next few weeks, I think. So keep an eye out for that, definitely. And and if you, as I say, if you do have any any input, then I'm sure that would be very valid in this whole process, which I think, you know, it's just great that people are being involved all the way through and hopefully we'll see a fantastic new network of protected areas coming up around the English coasts. And speaking of one of those, we're now joined today by Rob Spray bit of nice nominative determinism to go with Helen Scales from Sea Search East. Now he's been doing some of the surveying in the areas that may fall under a marine protected area and in particular the Norfolk Chalk Reef. Now you may have heard of coral reefs but I've never heard of a chalk reef before so hi Rob. 
Hi. Can you tell me about this weird underwater environment? What is a chalk reef? Well, it's not too weird, really. Um, it's sort of based on the, the basis, really, that a reef is any kind of obstruction. So you get a coral reef, and that's a reef made of coral. So a, a chalk reef is logically a, a rocky reef made of chalk. And the chalk we've got up in Norfolk was laid down during the Cretaceous period, which is kind of eponymous because Creta means chalk. Um, I say, oh, 70 plus million years ago during a, a warmer period in time and it's left us with this thick layer of rock which is unique in the region um, since we don't have any other rocky seabed. It's been sort of well known for the sort of crab and lobster fishing locally but recently we've been having a sort of really good look at it and it's, it's a wonderful natural habitat as well. And I guess the people of, of Norfolk may not realise that they have this spectacular underwater environment there. What sort of things can you find in this, in this chalk reef? Um, well, it's very, very biodiverse. I mean, the, the signature animals are the crustaceans. We get huge numbers of lobsters and crabs all over it. They can burrow in it and they can actually dig in the chalk to release sort of animals and algaes that, that grow in it to eat. You get seals, shoals of fish, sea slugs, weird things like floraminiferans, rhizoans, sponges, the whole nine yards really. So you hear people always talking about places like Lundy which have had loads and loads of good publicity because all the people who study that stuff are down there. But over here on the east we've got loads of good stuff um, but we don't have the big institutions that have been looking at them for very long. Now is this area currently protected? Um, it, it looks like it may fall under a, a future marine protected area. Is it currently protected at the moment? There's been a sort of degree of protection of it for probably about 100 years. I mean, due to sort of local potting interests, trawlers have been kept away, and that was probably sort of de facto, really, because a trawler would have dragged up the potting gear, and also trawlers 100 years ago would have struggled to drag it over the chalk. Uh, but it was made a bylaw about 50 years ago. I guess once trawlers got strong enough and gear got rugged enough to drag over the chalk. So it's had bylaw protection from trawling, but there's been little else on it. And so we're hoping it will become an, a full-fledged MCZ so all the impacts on it can be managed and hopefully we can look at it to sort of re recover, be protected, maybe from displacement activities which other MCZs might might shove towards us. So what, what does make this area off the Norfolk coast so special? I mean, what, what in your eyes really makes it something that is worthy of preserving in, in the national context? Well, apparently, and I'm no geologist, um, only uh, about 2% of Britain's coast is, is chalk, and we've got the, the longest reef in Britain, at least in Europe, we think, and worldwide the, the significance is probably even greater because it's a soft yet stable habitat. It seems to suit some particular animals. We've got a great show of, of algaes there. Within the region, it is completely unique, and I mean, you only have to be there on a summer's day and it is it is what people would think of as, as reef diving, almost Mediterranean diving. It's sort of clear, it's some of the warmest water in the UK during the summer, but it has a tremendous range. So you get species that need a cold snap as well. It's a great place to be. Oh, you just make me want to go and put my wetsuit on and, uh, and get a snorkelling. Thank you very much. That's Rob Spray from Sea Search East. And we've also been joined by Jen Ashworth from Natural England. And we've just got a few minutes to take on some of your questions. Yes, we've heard on Twitter from Alan Emery and, uh, who says, what proportion of the main ocean habitats need complete protection to ensure viable level of marine biodiversity? Quite a big and nebulous question, I think. I don't know if, Jen, have you got any thoughts on that particular idea of, of, of really strict protection and how much of that we need? Or do we know how much we need? It's a great question. We think that in a marine protected area network, you should have a range of levels of protections, have some places that have high levels of protection and other places where most activities can happen. You're just removing the most damaging ones. So the balance of those needs to vary and will probably depend on the uses of the sea as well. But it's important to have that kind of range of levels in your network. I think that's one thing that people don't maybe kind of understand that a marine protected area can be many different things. It, it can be a very strict reserve, um, like the one we talked about in Pitcairn, where 
ideally there'll be no fishing and not any other activities and some where you know some activities are allowed because they aren't going to damage the species and habitats that are there we've got a question here which i think rob could answer if you're still there rob um a question from mick in clacton he says now james cameron has spent millions of pounds on his recent deep sea expedition do you think it would be good if we saw more explorations of of the ocean bed like that soon I think so. I think part of the the problem, sort of the, particularly the North Sea has over on the East Coast, is people don't believe there's a load of good stuff in it. They don't believe it's full of animals. And whilst the sort of Southwest gets a lot of coverage and tropical seas get a lot of coverage, people aren't familiar with the stuff we're talking about protecting. Um, at the MCZ meetings, it was very hard to get across to people who were, I mean, basically industrial interests trying to play the rules for their own ends and bureaucrats trying to shift a process through. It was very hard to get across that the places you're protecting are places full of animals. You wouldn't consider farming using two helicopters and a seven-mile wide net, but that's the kind of thing that people do um, looking for fish. And you leave behind a, a wrecked seabed if you don't protect it and you don't manage it. So the more you could see and the more you knew about the animals and the habitats in place, the more people, I think, would value them. We have a lot of interest from geologists who tell us, well, actually, that stuff is unique in its own right. Aside from the animals on it, those are features that if they were on land, they would be protected. But since they're unseen, they've been unstudied and they, they pass unremarked. So we just need to get someone down there. We do Definitely. indeed. The oceans are so out of sight and out of mind. That's such a big thing to get across. We had a couple of uh, messages on Twitter. Madeleine Redfern says, I think public is on side for sustainable fisheries, in my honest opinion. It's getting industry and government um, real to get their real support that's important. And Alan Emery on Twitter also says, sustainable fisheries are scientifically achievable but need wide public support. And getting that public support is the problem. I absolutely agree. We do need to get people on side. And, and Jen, you were saying, also that uh, you've been working very much on bringing that evidence up about what's beneath the waves, the fantastic things that, that we're discovering down there and there's lots of survey work going on. Absolutely. There's a lot of survey work going on to increase the no- our knowledge of the marine conservation zones. And once they're designated, then we're going to collect more information to monitor them and tell us how healthy they are. Great. Well, I think now it's time for our friendly neighbourhood, Hannah Critchlow, to ask us this week's question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, we wonder if we can make a real-life Spider-Man. Enrique's got in touch with this question. If we put the DNA from a spider into a human, what would happen? So, can you successfully mix spider and human DNA? And what could you create, if so? We turn to a genetics professor working where Dolly the Sheep was created. Hello, my name's Helen Sang. I work at the Roslyn Institute, which is part of the University of Edinburgh. It would be relatively easy to introduce spider genes into humans by adapting the methods we use to make genetically modified mice, for example, and combining this with the techniques used in in vitro fertilization, IVF, that are used to make test tube babies. We can introduce genes into specific tissues or organs, the basis of gene therapy. This is very new technology and is only just becoming licensed as a medical treatment. And here, we would introduce a gene into a specific tissue, for example, muscle, and repair a mutation. So it is possible to mix the DNA of humans and spiders. For this scenario, let's ignore the strict regulations in place to ensure these methods are used responsibly and ask instead, could we actually make a real-life Spider-Man? Spider-Man had a lot of characteristics of a superhuman, that he was hyperactive and an elite athlete, many characteristics that individuals have some of, but uh, nobody has all these different characteristics. So we have people who are are sprinters or uh, people who are very energetic, uh, but Spider-Man pulled a lot of these characteristics together. And at the moment, human geneticists are identifying variations in our genes that lead to these differences. So maybe maybe Spider-Man has just got the elite versions of many of these genes we could think about, uh, in the longer term, 
genetically modifying people so that they could sprint and were very active and very intelligent. But that would require us to make lots of changes by genetic modification. And not only is that illegal, but I think that's a bit too much of a challenge for today. And researchers have genetically tweaked a goat to produce spider silk protein in its milk. So maybe we could purify this goat's milk to produce a Spiderman web shooter. Joseph Katz added via Facebook, the traits that allow spiders to climb walls have a lot to do with their low mass-to-surface area ratio. Dense humans might be better off taking inspiration from geckos, whose wall-sticking ability is due to millions of microscopic Velcro-like hair pads on their feet. Now, sticking with the genre of genetics, we glide into this question. Hi, my name's Louis. I'm 15 and I come from London. I was just wondering, fetuses... Their cells multiply really quickly, but I've never heard of one having cancer. Is it possible? So, can fetuses become cancerous? What do you think about that one? Let us know by posting on a Naked Scientist Facebook page. You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can join in the debate live on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Hannah Critchlow. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Jen Ashworth from Natural England, Rob Spray from Sea Search East, and Doug Fudge and his slimy hagfish from Guelph University. And thanks to you for your questions and comments. Next week, we're taking a look at my favourite subject, epigenetics. We'll find out how factors outside your genes could be just as important as what's inside them. So do keep sending your questions and comments to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can post on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists. This week's show was produced by Ben Valsler, Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. (laughs) 